Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today we'll be in Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 33, which are located on page 494 and 495 of the Blue Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, those are our gift to you from Northridge. They're located in the back of the chairs in front of you. Again, that is Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Thus says God's word. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We confess that we we need your word to read our hearts, to examine our hearts, to pierce our hearts, and to change our hearts. And we ask this morning that you would, through your word, through the work of your spirit, do a work in each one of our hearts, that you would cause us to cling to you in faith, to trust in you more and more, to submit to your authority in all things, Lord. Father, I pray that you would help me this morning to speak, not my own words, but to speak your words. I pray that your gospel would be proclaimed clearly this morning, and then it would it would be beneficial um, to us who hear this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open our ears to hear your word, to receive your word. And Lord, we, we pray in faith and we trust that your word will accomplish everything that you purpose this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. This will be, this morning will be our last, uh, morning in the book of Mark before we, uh, take a break for our Advent series starting next week. And then in the new year we will pick back up with the Gospel of Mark until uh, it comes all the way to completion. Uh, so, Mark 11 this morning. Now, if, if you'll remember back to last week, this, this passage we read this morning, it kind of, it kind of picks up mid-story mid or mid-narrative. So if you'll remember back to last week, Jesus has finished his ministry in Galilee, and he's now journeyed to Jerusalem which will ultimately lead to his arrest and his crucifixion. And the section of Mark that we're currently in, Mark 11, Mark 12, 
deals with Jesus' pronouncement of judgment on the nation of Israel, but more specifically, His pronouncement of judgment on the religious leaders of Israel. And it begins with the cursing of the fig tree, as we heard last week. Jesus and His disciples are journeying into Jerusalem from Bethany, and on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus is hungry, right? Something we can all relate to. And he sees a fig tree, and Mark tells us that the tree was in leaf. And what that means is, the tree should have had fruit on it. And Jesus gets to the tree, and he finds that there is no fruit on the tree. And so, he curses it. And the fig tree, as we heard last week, is symbolic of the nation of Israel and its leaders. It looks healthy from a far distance, but when you got up close and examined it, Jesus found that there was no fruit on the tree. Faith was lacking. In Matthew 23, 27 and 28, Jesus compares the scribes and Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. What he's saying is is that on the outside... You guys look really, really good. You guys look really, really impressive. But on the inside, there is nothing but death and decay. And and the point Jesus is making is clear, that no righteousness of our own will ever make us acceptable in the sight of God. No work that we can do uh, can ever save us. We We can go to church all of our lives. We can do all the Christian things. We can listen to sermons, we can listen to podcasts, we can sing Christian songs, we can do Christian things. But if we have not submitted in faith to the authority of Jesus over all of our lives, then we are dead. We are a tree that is without fruit. And we're good for nothing but to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree. And right after that, immediately following that, he goes into the temple, he overturns the tables of the money changers, he makes a whip, he drives out all of those people who are using the temple as a means for financial gain. And and what we see Jesus doing here is passing judgment on Israel's leaders and their worship. And he's demonstrating that He is the one who has authority over them and over their worship. Jesus is the Lord of the temple. And Jesus comes to purify the temple. And Jesus comes to restore the temple to its original purpose. And that, of course, is prophetic of what Jesus does in the lives of believers because now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us. So Jesus, after clearing the temple, he and his disciples leave Jerusalem. They go back to Bethany for the night. And they return the next morning. And as they're coming back into Jerusalem, lo and behold, they pass by the same fig tree that Jesus cursed. And Peter sees the fig tree and he's absolutely amazed that in a period of 24 hours or less, this tree is completely destroyed. Pastor Mark pointed out last week that it wasn't just a little sick and droopy. This this tree is utterly dead. It says down to the roots. It's 
completely dead. Peter says to Jesus, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. He's astounded. He's amazed. And Christ's reply is have faith in God. Have faith in God. And that's where we pick up our text for this morning. Have faith in God. In our text this morning, we'll see the contrast. We'll see, we'll see a juxtaposition between the life of faith and the life of unbelief. And we'll see this morning that Jesus is the only hope for removing the mountain of unbelief that resides in the heart of every unbeliever. So let's pick back up verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Now, there are varying opinions on why Jesus is telling His disciples to have faith at this point in the narrative. Uh, But if we look at Matthew's account in Matthew 21, it's very clear that Jesus is simply responding to the absolute amazement of Peter and the disciples at the cursing of the fig tree. Right Yesterday, this was a perfectly healthy tree, and today it's completely withered and completely destroyed. And the disciples are having trouble believing what they're seeing. Right, And this isn't the first time that they have struggled with a lack of faith when confronted by the authority and the power of Jesus. We read in Mark chapter 4 that when Jesus calmed the storm, it says that the disciples were filled with great fear. And they said, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? They couldn't believe what they're seeing. In Mark chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, after Jesus walks on water to the disciples in the boat, it says they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They couldn't believe some of the things they were seeing. How is it possible that this man can calm a storm? that He can multiply bread, that he can, that He can walk on water, that He can merely speak to this tree and it immediately withers and dies. Where does this authority and this power come from? And of course, one of the points of all of these texts is, is to show us that true faith requires more than simply seeing miraculous things. True faith requires a radical, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts. Have you ever heard someone say, I wish, I wish that God would just give me a sign. You ever heard that before? I wish, I wish God would just show me somehow that He's real. But, but here's the truth. If you and I do not trust in God's Word that He has given to us, then no amount of signs and wonders will ever cause us to trust in Him. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. Lazarus, the poor beggar, has died. He's gone to heaven. Uh, The rich man has died and gone to hell. And he's pleading with Abraham to please send Lazarus to go and warn his brothers 
so that they don't end up in the same place that he is. And so this is, this is what it says, Luke 16, 27 to 31. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So hear me on this. This is important. The root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. The root of unbelief is a hardened heart. What that means is that the remedy for unbelief is not more evidence. The the remedy is a supernatural work of God in the heart of an unbeliever. The disciples are once again just simply astounded and amazed um, at this miracle that Jesus has done. And, And I think that it's also likely that they're astounded by these pronouncements of judgment that Jesus has just proclaimed over Israel and over the men who are supposed to be the religious and spiritual leaders of Israel. And Christ's response is to tell them to have faith in God. And then he continues, verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Okay, so, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen someone command a mountain to be uprooted and thrown into the sea? Show of hands. Anyone? No one. Okay. Well, how many of you have ever commanded a mountain to be uprooted and caused it to be thrown into the sea. How many? No one. And we've got a church full of no faith, apparently. So, when Jesus says this, hopefully it's clear to us, Jesus is not being literal here. Moving a mountain was a common metaphor in Jewish literature for doing something that is seemingly impossible. So I'm going to save you some trouble... If you go and find a mountain and you try to command it to be uprooted and thrown into a sea, it's not going to work. Nothing's going to happen. So, so don't waste your time. But as the disciples are once again struggling with believing what they're seeing, Jesus is saying to them, If you have faith in me, then things that are seemingly impossible will be possible for you. And, and so Jesus now, in the next verse, he's going to elaborate on that statement. Verse 24. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So Jesus here is taking the opportunity to teach the disciples about faith, but specifically faith in relation to prayer. If we pray in faith then we should believe that we will receive whatever it is we are asking for. Now, let's pause right there for just a moment. 
We need to camp out here for a minute. Because when we think about verses in the Bible that have been taken out of context and been abused in some way or another, this verse right here for sure makes the top ten, probably the top five. What exactly is it that Jesus is telling us here, verse 23 and 24? Is this Jesus' endorsement of the word of faith, name it, claim it, movement? Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar, uh, the Word of Faith movement, I should say the Word of Faith heresy, which, by the way, has affected millions and millions of people. Right? This is not just some small little pocket somewhere. This is, this is something that's believed by millions of people. The Word of Faith heresy teaches that if you claim something in the name of Jesus, if you simply believe for it, whatever it is, then God is obligated to give that to you. He's obligated. So if you want that promotion at work, then all you have to do is believe it and claim it in Jesus' name, and God is obligated to give it to you. Right? If you want that bigger house, if you want that new car, if you want that supermodel spouse, if you want that successful career, right? whatever it is, Just believe it, just claim it, and it's yours. And God has no choice but to give it to you. Uh, Let me read to you uh, just a few quotes from, from some of the guys that are teaching this stuff. God has to be given permission to work in this earth realm on behalf of man. Yes, you are in control. That's Frederick Price. Never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, If it be thy will. Benny Hinn. It is our confession that rules us. E.W. Kenyon. Uh, Here's a couple more. The thing that makes a believer a success is right thinking, right believing, and right confession. That's Kenneth Hagin. And then, when we use the spiritual laws that God has set up, God must obey what we request. That's Kenneth Copeland. Now, guess what verses from the Bible these people use to justify teaching like that? That would be Mark 11:23 and 11:24, among a few others. But here's the problem. What what these false teachers are doing are they're they're picking a verse here and there. They're taking them out of context while completely ignoring the testimony of the rest of Scripture. right? And, and we've said this before, but if you simply take a verse, pluck it out of its context, isolate it from the rest of Scripture, you can make the Bible say all kinds of heretical things. And people have done that, and people are doing that, and people will continue to do that until Jesus returns. That is why it is our job as the church to teach the full counsel of God. In Acts 20, verse 27, Paul is bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders. And he tells them, Acts 20, 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the full counsel of God. See, Paul didn't just teach the Ephesians his favorite Bible passages. He didn't just teach them the easy parts. He didn't just teach them the the non-offensive parts. He declared to them the full 
counsel of God, everything that the Word of God had to say on any given issue or subject. That is, by the way, one of the main reasons that we are committed as a church to preaching through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, like we're doing with the Gospel of Mark. We call that expository preaching. Uh, But that way, right, we don't get to skip over any parts. We don't skip the hard parts. We don't skip the difficult passages. And there are difficult passages. Uh, We don't skip the parts that may offend someone. We teach the full counsel of God. That is our job, our calling, our responsibility as elders of the church. And if we examine the full counsel of God when it comes to faith and to prayer, then we'll see immediately that Jesus is not teaching or endorsing a word of faith heresy. Let me give you just a couple examples of what Scripture has to say about faith and prayer. James 4, 2 and 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, you're you're not going to hear Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland preach passages like that. It does not fit what they believe and what they teach. 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. According to His will. Can't leave that part out. That's, that's very important. That really changes that passage. And, and, and the reality is, we cannot correctly interpret Mark eleven twenty three and 24 unless we know what God says in James chapter 4, what God says in 1 John chapter 5, and many, many other passages. The Word of Faith movement simply turns God into a magic genie who must grant us our every wish and desire. And what actually is happening there is we're making ourselves God, right? The people that that teach Word of Faith, they're making themselves God. They're saying, well, yeah, God, God has to give me what I ask for. God has to do what I say. And they will one day be judged for that teaching. The Bible teaches us that when we pray in faith, according to the will of God, that God will hear us and He'll answer us. He'll give us what we pray for. And that that church, and, and I, I'm sure I've said this before in other sermons, but that is the purpose of prayer. Not to get God to do what we want, but to change our hearts so that we desire and we ask for the things that God wants and God desires, right? And Jesus modeled this type of prayer Himself when He prayed in the garden, Mark 14, 36. And He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. What's, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, Abba, Father, You can move mountains. You can uproot mountains and throw them into the sea. There's nothing that You cannot do. Remove this cup from Me. And he's referring to his imminent crucifixion, not just his death, but his bearing of the sins of the elect and his bearing of the wrath of God in their place. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, 
but what you will. So, so Benny Hinn has it backwards. No surprise, right? He says, Never ever come to God saying, Thy will be done. In truth, church, we must never ever come to God in prayer without saying, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. The disciples, like they have many times, they're, they're wavering in their faith. Now, now I should point out, this is, this is not the same as the unbelief that we're going to see in the scribes and Pharisees. The disciples are not unregenerate, you know, stuck in their unbelief. But they're wavering in their faith, as all of us can relate to, as they have many times. And Jesus is saying, if, if you have faith in me, if you trust in me, if you are submitted to the Father, if you pray according to the Father's will, then He will do things in you and through you that are seemingly impossible. God will remove every barrier of unbelief. God will move mountains for you. He's saying, you, you think the cursing of the fig tree is impressive? You can't even begin to imagine what God will accomplish through people who put their faith and their trust in Him completely. And that's exactly what we see then throughout the book of Acts. We see this little ragtag team of just common guys, right? You know, these disciples, they're, they're not anyone special. They're not people of high learning or high position. But we see this little ragtag team of, of common people filled with the Holy Spirit, and take the gospel to the nations. The reason that you and I have the gospel today is because a small group of disciples had faith in Jesus, and God used that faith to do impossible things, to move mountains. Jesus then concludes this section of the story, verse 25 He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, at first glance, this may seem like just kind of a bit of a random addition um, at the end of this teaching on faith and prayer. But the reality is, is that forgiveness is at the very heart of the Christian faith and the Christian gospel. We are the followers of Jesus precisely because Jesus forgave us, and it is impossible to be people of faith, to be followers of Jesus, if we refuse to give the forgiveness that we claim to have received in Christ. In other words, we cannot call ourselves Christians, we cannot call ourselves followers of Jesus if we are unwilling to forgive those who have sinned against us. So if you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart toward anyone, then you are living in a way that dishonors the Lord. Forgive the one who has sinned against you, just as as Jesus teaches His disciples to pray. Forgive that your Father may hear you when you ask for forgiveness and when you come to Him in prayer. You see, we have no right to ask God for anything if we refuse to forgive those who have wronged us. But when 
we have truly placed our trust in Jesus, our faith in the Lord, when we've submitted our lives to Him, when we've learned to pray according to His will, then we can trust that God will hear our prayers, God will answer our prayers, and He will do things that seem impossible to us. That includes removing the unbelief in our hearts. That, that includes softening our hearts that are hardened. That includes removing our heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. Forgiving us our sins, casting them away as far as the east is from the west. This is the life of faith that we are called to in Christ. But now... In contrast to everything we've just heard, uh, we're going to see what the life of unbelief looks like. Verse 27 and 28. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? So, Jesus has now returned to the temple that he literally just cleared out 24 hours earlier. And as he's walking in the temple, he's confronted by the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. These are the religious leaders of Israel and they are very upset with Jesus. Jesus has not only ruined some of their business ventures, He's not only impeded their cash flow, but Jesus has challenged their authority. And they don't like that. And they're threatened by Him. And so, seeking once again to trap Jesus in His words so that they can arrest Him and get rid of Him, they ask Him this question, Who gave you the authority to do the things that you are doing. Now, the immediate context of this question is Jesus having just cleared out the temple, right? Jesus, who gave you the authority to clear out the temple yesterday? You're not one of the chief priests, right? You're not one of the elders. You're not a, a part of the Sanhedrin. Who gave you that authority Jesus, right? But the question also refers to the miracles that Jesus has been doing all throughout the gospel that we've been studying. It refers also to the things that he has been teaching. Remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Jesus, where does your authority come from? Is your authority legitimate? R.C. Sproul says that this question is the supreme question that every unbeliever faces today. So let me ask you this morning, have you... I want you to think about this question. Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ over your life and over every part of your life? 
Have you submitted to Christ's authority by trusting in His work alone for your salvation? You see, if, if you're trusting in any work of your own to be saved, that is unbelief. Have you submitted to Christ's authority by obeying the Word of God and the entire Word of God, the full counsel of God, not just the parts you like, not just the easier, the convenient parts, but all of God's Word? I saw um, someone with a cup, coffee cup the other day. It had a little sticker on it. And uh, the sticker said, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Um, and I don't, you've, probably, you've probably seen stuff like that before. I've seen it on t-shirts and stuff like that. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Now, to a lot of people, that just seems like, oh, you know, that's kind of just a funny, cute, witty little statement, right? But, but stop and think for a minute what we're actually saying there. What we're saying is, I'm a Christian, but I'm not 100% submitted to the Word of God, and that's okay. That's fine. But see, if we are not fully submitted to the authority of Christ and His Word over our lives, then we are in unbelief. We are practicing unbelief. And the Word of God calls us to repent. You see, the life of faith is the life that recognizes the absolute authority of Jesus Christ over all things. That includes my life, and that includes your life, and that includes every part, every aspect of our lives. Is the way you are living your life submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ and His Word? Is the way that you spend and appropriate your time submitted to Christ and His authority? Is the way you spend your money and your recesses submitted to Jesus and His authority? Is the way that you love and treat your spouse, is the way that you raise your children submitted to the authority of Christ? Is the way that you act at work in your profession submitted to the authority of Jesus? Jesus, where does your authority come from? That's what they ask. And here's Jesus' answer, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And, I, man, I wish I could have been here to hear some of these conversations. You see, uh, these guys have still not figured out that trying to trap Jesus in his words is a bad idea. And it, it never works out well for them. Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question first. And here's Jesus' question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, when Jesus refers to the baptism of John, he is referring to the ministry of John. And that's John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist. 
So here's what he's asking. Was John the Baptist sent by God? That's the question. Was John the Baptist's ministry divinely commissioned by God, or was it merely of human origin? Answer me. Here is their answer, verse 31 to 33. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, we know very clearly from the Gospels that the religious leaders of Israel did not accept John's ministry as divinely ordained by God. They rejected John, and they rejected his ministry. And just like with Jesus, they were threatened by John because John confronted them on their hypocrisy. John confronted them on their sin. John confronted them on their unbelief. He had some not very nice things to say about them, and they didn't like John. They wanted John out of the picture. They rejected him. They rejected that he came from God and spoke on behalf of God. So they're stuck between a rock and a hard place here. If they say that John's ministry came from God, then they would have to affirm that Christ's ministry also comes from God. And then the obvious question would be, why didn't you believe John? And why don't you believe me? So they clearly can't affirm that John's ministry came from the Lord. They didn't believe it. But here's the problem. The people of Israel did believe that John was sent by God. They believed that John was a true prophet who spoke on behalf of God. And if they were to deny that John was sent by God, they risked the wrath of the people, right? And they were afraid of that. If the people were to riot, to rise up, then Rome might step in and Rome might strip them of their positions and their authority. And they're terrified of that. It, it, this all comes down to authority. They will not submit to Christ's authority because they want authority for themselves. As does anyone who won't submit to the authority of Christ. So what do they do? Well, they, they chicken out. Right? They, they lie. They say, well, you know, we don't know. The truth is, they did not believe that John came from God, just as they did not believe that Jesus was God or that Jesus came from God. They'd made up their minds already. And, and remember, right, we, we talked about the root of unbelief is not a lack of evidence. Remember, these guys have seen miracle after miracle. They have seen sign after sign. They have... They have seen Jesus open the eyes of a blind man. They have, they have seen Jesus make the leper clean. They have seen Jesus command the paralytic to get up and walk. 
They've seen Jesus raise people from the dead. Literally bring people back to life. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, what was their response? It wasn't worship. It wasn't to get on their knees to bow before Jesus and confess that He was Lord. Their response was to make plans to put Jesus to death. That was their response to the signs and wonders that Jesus did. Right? Because Jesus threatened their authority. They didn't want to submit to Him. So how does Jesus, in this passage, respond to their unbelief? This is, this is the most sobering part of the entire passage. Right? Jesus doesn't preach to them. Jesus doesn't plead with them and beg them to believe in Him. Jesus doesn't try to change their minds. He simply leaves them in their hardness of heart and unbelief. Without the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, there is is no remedy whatsoever for unbelief. That, that, is, that is a work that only God can accomplish. Only God can move mountains. Right? Jesus' point is not, hey, if, if you have faith, then you can do whatever you want. Jesus' point is that when, when you trust me, when you trust God and submit to God, then there is no limit to what God can do in you and through you. And God is the one who can do and accomplish things that seem impossible. So what about us this morning? Right? As, as we close, it's, it's time for self-reflection. What do we do with the word uh, that we've just heard? Are you living a life of faith submitted to the authority of Jesus over all of your life, every aspect of your life? Or are you living in unbelief, unwilling to submit to Christ's authority over you? And if, if that's you, let me, let me plead with you this morning. As the author of Hebrews says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. If you have not trusted Jesus fully. Let me plead with you today. Don't don't wait for another day. Another day is never promised. Let me plead with you today to call on the name of Jesus. Trust in Him completely for your salvation. Trust in His perfect work on the cross that He accomplished as He took our sin upon Himself, as He bore the wrath of God in our place. And submit to Him fully. Call to Him that you might be saved. And and listen, there there is no greater obstacle that you will ever, ever face than your unbelief. But we serve a God that can do the impossible. We serve a God that moves mountains. If you're a Christian this morning, then give thanks today and give thanks every day that God 
did the impossible for you. That God moved mountains for your sake. That God took the mountain of unbelief in your heart and He uprooted it and He cast it away. He took your sin. He took your guilt. He paid for it. He cast it away. And He remembers it no more. Give thanks. And as you pray for friends, for loved ones, for family who are stuck in the hardness of their own hearts, who are mired in unbelief, I want to encourage you to not give up. To continue to pray in faith, trusting that there is no obstacle that is too great for our Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we we confess that the only reason that we are saved, the only reason we can call ourselves sons and daughters of the King, the only reason we can come to Your table this morning and, and partake of the bread and the cup is because of something that You did. And you accomplished. It was through no work of our own. It wasn't because we deserved it in any way. It wasn't because we were special. Or because there was any goodness in us whatsoever. But Lord, when we were sinners, when we were mired in unbelief, You had mercy on us. You loved us. Father, You sent Your Son on our behalf. To give His life on our behalf. To suffer the penalty that we should have suffered to become a curse in our place. Lord, and for that, we can do nothing but but give thanks to pour out our hearts in gratitude to You. Thank You that nothing is impossible for You. I pray, Lord, that You would help us. Lord, as, as we go through life, as we... Life is, life is hard oftentimes. There are so many great challenges that we have faced that we will continue to face. And yet, Lord, help us to cling to You in faith. Help us to trust You in the good times and the hard times. Lord, Lord, believing that there's nothing impossible for You. Lord, You will continue to sanctify us, to conform us into the image of Christ. You will preserve us until You return. You will keep us safely in Your hand and nothing can snatch us from Your hand. Lord, we give thanks. Help us to trust You more. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the tremendous joy and the tremendous privilege now of coming as Christ's body as His bride to His table, uh, remembering, celebrating what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Um, If I could ask our communion helpers if they would come forward and prepare to serve. Um, And and before we come, let me just remind you as we do each week um, that this table is for those who have submitted their lives fully to the authority of Jesus. Um, This table is for believers. The Scripture tells us if you come as an unbeliever, you eat and drink the Lord's judgment upon yourself. 
And we want you to know that, that if, if, you are, if you are still not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, uh, we want you to abstain from coming this morning, but we want you to know that we are praying for you and we are trusting that God will accomplish His good work in your hearts. And we would, we would ask you um, to, to come and talk to us. Let, us. let us share the gospel with you. Let us tell you how you can um, live a life that honors the Lord, that is fully submitted to Him. But if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come and take the elements back to your seat, and in a moment we will take those together. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Awesome. Yeah. To God alone be the glory. Let's come and partake of the elements, and, and in a moment we will take them together. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, we, we give you all thanks, all praise, all glory. That in your, your infinite wisdom, goodness, and sovereignty. You chose to have mercy on us. You sent Jesus to be a curse for us, to be punished for us, that we might enjoy everlasting life with You. Father, may there, may there never be a day where we're not just filled to overflowing with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Lord, and may, and may we just have an urgency and a zeal to proclaim the goodness of Your Gospel to the nations, to all those around us. Lord, we give You all thanks, all glory, and all praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you put your hands in a receiving position, let me read uh, to you a benediction from the doxology at the end of the book of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.